Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Monday Morning 8 a.m., podcast from Firms Consulting that goes out every Monday morning where we distill the insights from all the noise out there. You can listen to the audio version of Monday Morning 8 a.m. by searching for Strategy Skills in any podcast app and get a written version with all the links to the articles, pieces we mentioned, and so on by signing up on www.firmsconsulting.com forward slash promo. So here are the big themes we are noticing this week. The first one is what I'm going to call pride versus power. And it's a piece that came out in Asia Nikkei, which takes the latest Apple iPhone 12, it breaks it down quite literally into its separate components. And in that investigative piece, the journalists assigned value, dollar value, to each component that made up the iPhone 12 and then determined from which country each component originated. And what they found is that 26.8% of the value of components in an iPhone is sourced from Korea. 21.9% comes from the United States. The little island of Taiwan, which I'm sure many people would not be able to find in a map because not that it's not significant, but because it's so small, contributed 11.1% of the total value of components in an iPhone 12. And Japan came in at 13.6. Now, why does this matter? It matters because whenever you see any brand out there in the world, any product, inherently a brand, a company, a product does have national and regional pride attached to that. What do I mean by that? Americans are rightly proud that Steve Jobs invented the iPhone well, he didn't invent the iPhone, but he developed the iPhone with a team of people reporting underneath him in California, United States of America. But while the phone may have been developed in the United States, there's a large chunk of pieces that are coming from other countries. So every time we read about iPhone sales going through the roof, we read about Apple's surging market cap. Inherently, when you read these tables, whether it's Fortune and so on, they put the location of the company next to the company's name. And any fortune table would say Apple from the United States of America. But what you don't see in all of those numbers is that for every iPhone bought, a very large percentage of the money you are giving Apple is not going to Apple. It's going to a group of component manufacturers in Korea, Taiwan, Japan, and a number of other countries. That's real dollars. So, for example, if you bought an iPhone for, I don't know what the price of an iPhone is, but let's assume $1,000, a fairly large chunk is going to Korea. A fairly large chunk is going to Taiwan and Japan. Now, the insight is a lot more deeper than that. Because at a certain time in the future, and it's already happening for some of these countries now, all those component supplies to Apple, they're collecting this money, they're building a reservoir of cash, and they want to do something with it. What will they do? Well, they'll most likely start building their own branded products. We saw this with Taiwan 
in the 80s and 90s. For a very long time, American companies, Western companies in general, they would white label their products. What that means is they would go to a Taiwanese company and say, will you build this for us? Will you not put your logo on it? And will you put our logo on it? So that's what they would do. They would buy the stuff from the Taiwanese companies, they'd bring it to America, Australia, the United Kingdom, and they'd sell it under their brands. Eventually, the Taiwanese manufacturers realized that, hold on a second, why can't we do this? We have the know-how, we need the brand. And that's basically what they did. That's the migration up the value chain. Every time we talk about the rise of Apple, surging iPhone sales, every time an iPhone is bought, every time a laptop is bought, we are slowly, incrementally, and purposefully funding a future competitor. And that's capitalism. That's how capitalism works. It's not as if Apple can get away from this. They need these suppliers and they know full well that some of these suppliers will in time migrate up the value chain. They won't want to be original equipment manufacturers, faceless suppliers forever. They'll build their own brands and they will compete with Apple. That's the insight whenever you have deeply integrated supply chains. Every time you outsource something, every time you use a supplier, no matter how careful you are, you are basically paying a supplier money, but at the same time, you're paying them money to teach them how you operate. So you're running an educational program for them, but you're paying them money. And the only way to get around this is to constantly innovate so that when your suppliers eventually catch up with you and start doing what you've trained them to do, you're at the next level of the curve. Sometimes it doesn't work out. We're seeing that with Intel right now. People have caught up. The Asian fabricators have caught up. In fact, they've overtaken Intel in some cases. But whenever you see these articles about how successful a company is, and you may feel proud because this company is located in your country, pride at the end of the day doesn't mean much if the majority of the dollars are flowing out to future competitors. And the reality is that this is capitalism. You've got to make these decisions. If you look at the competitive strategy study, which Kevin Coyne has, all of the episodes are now out. And he talks you through the decisions, the trade-offs, and the choices you have to make. He talks about scarcity a lot, the principle of scarcity. And that's true. You've got to realize if something is scarce and valuable, you're in the game. But if something is no longer scarce, it's not going to be valuable for long. And as companies go through their corporate planning exercises, which is now happening around the world, actually, over December, January, and February, I think that's a very good program to look at and seed those ideas into the corporate planning packs your company is putting together. The next big piece I've read is what I call the coming taxation sensation. Again, Asia Nikkei did a piece about how, for a very long time, Asian governments believed in what they called lean decentralized governments, for lack of a better word, small governments. They believe that for a country to run, they would create an environment where private sector investment would come in and regional governments would step up. But the central government played a very limited role. And in fact, Asian governments tended to, with a few exceptions, of course, um, they tended to consider westernized governments like France, Italy, and so on, where the state played a big role to be very uh, outdated, very slow, lethargic and not competitive for the long term. But what we're seeing with COVID is that 
the role of the government has started to shift. What COVID has forced governments to do is to shatter an illusion they had. Most Asian governments believe that if they took on too much debt, they would suffer. But COVID gave them no choice. They had to take on the debt. And they've realized that, hold on a second, we're not suffering. The investment community is not punishing our bonds. We're not seeing credit rating downgrades. What we're seeing is that by taking on more debt that is being used fairly effectively to bolster our capitalist system, our social nets, and so on, the investment community is saying that, yeah, you're doing a good job, so we're going to reward you. Now, what's happening here is that it's encouraging many governments to take on more debt. Because previously, federal governments, the national government, for lack of a better word, would just focus on things like healthcare by creating the rules, not providing universal health care, by primarily things like defense and so on. But now governments are saying, hey, hold on a second, we can and maybe we should move into areas like providing retirement planning, insurance, financial services, universal health care systems. And what's going to happen is that people are going to like these things. But these things cost money. And what's ultimately going to happen is to fund these things. We're going to see a lot of governments that never relied on having a budget built on a large middle class, creating policies to develop a large middle class. But the goal is not just to create a large middle class, it's to tax a large middle class. So we're going to see over the next, I would say, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, a lot of policies, procedures, and potential consulting studies to build these middle classes, but also to create mechanisms to tax them. Now, someone asked me, now, how do you track? How do you link these things together? How do you see these big insights from the stories? Well, we have a program called How to Develop Deep Insights, How to Develop Big Insights. That's available for insiders on strategytraining.com, where I lay out the exact mechanics of the process I use. And it, you can see it's a process that you can apply to any problem anywhere in the world. The key thing here is you've got to realize that all change plays out over years. If you're in consulting, if you're in government, if you're in business, big events cause trends. You've got to see where the trend is going. If countries take on debt. They either need to default or they pay it off. But how do you pay it off? If they get comfortable taking on debt and they build mechanisms to take on debt, that means that they need a way to pay it off responsibly. But the only way to pay it off responsibly is you've got to build a middle class and tax them. It's not difficult to see that, but you have to build this methodology and thought process to do it. The other big article I'm reading, and this one comes from the Financial Times, is about a plan underway backed by financial powerhouses to build a new super sports league for football that sits above the Champions League. So basically the way football is arranged in Europe is um, each country has its own domestic league where anywhere from 15 to 20 to maybe 30 teams will play. They'll play each other. So all those teams, 20 of them, let's assume there's 20 teams in the league. All 20 teams will play each team twice, right? And what will happen is that the team with the most points at the end of all those games is crowned the champion of the domestic league. And then the top two teams from each domestic league go on to play in a um, special competition. The teams that came maybe third or fourth, fifth or sixth will play in another international competition, but of a less stature than the ones that came first and second. Now, the Champions League is for the teams that finished at the top 
of the league. I think it's the first one and two. I'm not exactly sure of that. But the bottom line is that there is now moves afoot to create a new league for the biggest and wealthiest teams. And the debate here, and this is a big debate, is that maybe qualification for the Super League is not dependent on whether you won your domestic league, but based on your popularity, based on the size of your spectator base, based on the amount of money you have. So this raises a deep question here. What makes a team a team? What makes Liverpool Football Club Liverpool Football Club? Is Liverpool Football Club Liverpool Football Club because it's based in the city of Liverpool in England? Is Liverpool Football Club Liverpool Football Club because no matter what happens, people from Liverpool by and large are going to support their team? What would happen if you took Liverpool FC and they just decided, well... We're going to accept this $20 billion investment from the government of Abu Dhabi and we're going to relocate to Abu Dhabi. And we're going to play all our games in Abu Dhabi. Will they still be called Liverpool Football Club? Can you take the name away? What happens when you play in Abu Dhabi? Will you still have the same fervent fan base? Here's a question, right? The big one. Does Liverpool have a fervent fan base internationally because... It has such a vocal fan base in Liverpool and people internationally see this and say, hold on a second, I want to be part of that story. If they're playing in Abu Dhabi and the stadium is not packed, is it going to excite people to keep watching them? Liverpool plays in the domestic league, the Premier League, Barclays Premier League in the UK, travels around the UK, a soccer mad nation. They invented football, so they should be a little bit crazy about it. And they play Manchester United, Arsenal, Everton, Tottenham, also packed stadiums. What happens if the stadiums are not packed? What happens if the stadiums are packed for just two years in Abu Dhabi and then fall away? What role does being in the right geographic region play in Liverpool's great success? What role does being in Liverpool and playing in a domestic league have in their great success can a football team be a football team can a sports team be a sports team if it moves not just from a city to city you know in, in america we see this quite often whereby a football team will move from oakland to detroit maybe or from as recently been happening from california to nevada but there you're moving within the same country where the likes and dislikes of the countries are generally the same between regions right i mean people like american football the NFL in Nevada just as much as they like it in California. They may like different teams, but the same psyche is there. But what happens when you break that? What makes a sports team truly a global brand? Is it winning? So if Liverpool joined the Abu Dhabi Domestic League and kept on winning, would it still be an elite team? Or does it matter where it wins? Does it matter with whom it wins, the fan base it has, and how it's winning? So... The question about whether to create the Super League is not just about money. It cuts to the heart of what made these teams that want to be in the Super League super teams in the first place. And will creating the Super League render their Super League status moot to begin with? That's the deep insight here. And people talk about money. It's not just about money. It's about what makes them elite teams in the first place. And what are the things they need to retain in the Super League to maintain their eliteness. Now, football is the world's most popular sport. 
it's a big deal. The 2022 FIFA World Cup is coming. It's two years away, but it's coming. And COVID and no COVID, you can be sure people are going to be playing. And I'm sure COVID will have been addressed by then. For insiders who have access to our advanced knowledge management system, one of the big things we're going to see companies doing is figuring out how they can get their advertising dollars to work for FIFA 2022 in the city-state of Qatar. So what we have done is we created a marketing strategy proposal document that if you're a consulting firm or a consultant, you can use that to gain work to help companies to think through their investments. You can use it for, it's been designed for FIFA 2022, but you can use it for any sports event. It's one of the many proposal documents we'll be loading up to the advanced knowledge management system. The next big theme, Financial Times had a piece about India deciding that they will no longer allow several Chinese apps to operate within the borders of India. Now, I'm not going to talk about whether it's right or wrong. It's not my place to do that. India is a sovereign nation. They get to make the rules they want to follow. They obviously have very smart people there thinking through the implications. They know their risks. They know their returns. And they've made a calculated choice. So whatever happens, I wish them and I wish the Chinese good luck. And I'm sure everyone can benefit and succeed no matter what happens. But I do want to talk through the underlying mechanics of what's happening here. Because there are some important insights. India is doing this because it believes that it's trying to achieve something and that something it's trying to achieve can best be accomplished by creating an environment that is not conducive for apps from certain countries. So the question is, what does India need and who is getting punished through this action? Somebody is always getting punished when you take legislative action. That's the nature of economics. There's not enough to go around. So any decision you make is about deciding whom you want to benefit and whom should not benefit. So the question here is, India, like any nation, whether it's developing or not, every nation needs capital because you need money to build things. You need expertise and you need creativity. So now the, India is making a decision here. They're saying, hold on a second. We are going to not allow Chinese apps into the market because we believe that we can get funding, expertise and creativity from other countries and from within our borders. And it is not going to stop us. We can build homegrown competitors. And if a foreign nation comes in that we are okay with, we'll let them grow their digital business. But there are certain nations, because they're close competitors, we don't want them to benefit from our large consumer market. Clearly, if you look at the recent capital raising programs led by GEO and so on, India is able to attract capital on the open market. That's not in doubt. India has expertise, that's not in doubt, and has creativity. But here's the question. Should you be turning away any capital, any expertise, and any creativity? That's the question. And that's really what the government of India needs to think about. Because in a world that's fighting for capital, in a world that's fighting for expertise, in a world that's fighting for creativity, how do you determine whose capital you turn away and how much to turn away? What's the right number? How do you know this? How do you know that this country's capital you should turn away, this country's expertise? Because building a vibrant ecosystem is very difficult. And of course, there's a precedent that if India did this with Chinese apps, will they do it with someone else? And of course, on the flip side, India is the last major market with a billion people. 
that's relatively, and I use the word carefully, relatively underdeveloped. So they know most people will be willing to take a chance. So someone in India needs to be thinking through these pieces, right? And needs to be thinking about the precedent being set, how to raise capital, how to source capital. Are we world trade organization compliant? If you look at the corporate strategy and transformation program we have on strategytraining.com, which is available to um, all insiders, one of the deep insights in that program is that developing a strategy, whether it's a strategy for a country, for a company, is not difficult in the sense of collecting the input and doing all the analysis and case studies. It's difficult because you have to just sit back and say, what should I do? But a bigger and more important question is, what happens if I'm wrong? And when you're doing strategy work, one of the things I've tried to inculcate in that, into that program is that good strategists take a sense of ownership. Because as advisors, it's very easy to do something, get paid and leave and not worry. But if you take a sense of ownership and you ask yourself, if I put together this plan and it fails, will I be so quick to recommend this plan in the first place? And how do I develop a mindset whereby there's a sense of ownership and not a sense of detachment? Because the worst strategy consultants are those who hop around from client to client and are not there over 5, 10, 15, 20 years to see the offshoots of their advice. Or do you just keep blaming the client? The client didn't do this. The client didn't have the skills. If you've worked at a client for five years, 10 years, you know what the client can and cannot do. Uh, you know how to word the strategy so that you pinpoint their actual problems. I mean, every client who has a strategy doesn't have the same Achilles heel, doesn't have the same implementation problems. They are unique to that client. Some final words of advice. Um, as we go into... 2021 a lot is happening in the world if anything COVID has just been another event a big event but it has not changed the pace of innovation it's not changed the pace of change if anything the rate of acceleration has accelerated competition is not backing down we live in a world of enormous change but what that means for your career is that it's also good and it's also bad what's good is that more opportunities what's bad is maybe you're not the best suited person for that opportunity and I remember speaking to a client recently who works for a tech company. And he works in the search engine division of that tech company. And he was telling me that he doesn't know what to do. There's nothing he can take to his superiors that gets them excited. The reason I tell the story is because you will be telling yourself stories as you go into the new year. Stories about why you cannot change your career. Stories about why... You're up against a tough, maybe peer at the office, maybe external competitor, maybe industrial giant that you're competing against. Be careful of the stories you tell yourself. There's always ways to compete. The question is whether you can see it, whether you have the wherewithal to work on putting together that business case over the next 20 days to convince your superiors to back you. When your board or your executive team doesn't back you, it's not their fault that they don't back you. It's because you haven't made the case. At the end of the day, if your company goes out of business because someone didn't make the case to fight against competitors, you can never use the argument, well, my board was too busy. No, your job is to convince them. program I always ask clients to follow is one of our anchor programs. To me, it's probably the most powerful program in Insider. And that's the program of Andrew. It is still the most relevant program. And I always tell clients, you need to follow Andrew's program. It's a story of how we helped a senior manager at a professional services firm basically reinvent his career 
reinvent his company and go from senior manager to senior partner, not partner in the space of three years, which is a pretty daunting task, but even more daunting when you consider he did it, not by taking on a front-facing sales role, but he took over a cost center at the firm and converted it into a moneymaker. Now, why that program is so important is I understand you may not be at a professional service firm and that's okay. I understand you may not be in a cost center. I understand you may not be in anything even close to Andrew's path. But what's interesting is the sequence of steps we made him take to create opportunities. And the big insight, which you'll see in the program, is that nothing is going to be given to you. And this is the thing that I think a lot of people fail to grasp. And it's easy to miss this. If you're at any age and you want to join a lucrative division or a money-making part of the business or a sexy, cool part of the business, there are many people who want to be in that sexy, cool part of the business. They're not going to give it to you unless there's a reason for that. And what we did with Andrew is we had to create a series of pilots so that he could demonstrate that he could do what he wanted to do build a coalition to back him so that he could incrementally get more and more responsibility. That's a three-year journey that we followed. So as you're going into the new year, my advice is to sit down with the loved one, preferably, and listen to the Andrew program. It's a remarkable program. It's still, my opinion, the best program on firms consulting because it talks the heart of why you are reading this newsletter and why you are listening to the Strategy Skills podcast. At the end of the day, you want to make your company successful, but you also have to be successful. And it's one thing to put together a nice strategy for your company, but you also have to put together and execute on the right strategy for your career. And as always, as you know, we have many books out. We have the Strategy Journal. We have Mavis. We have Succeeding as a Management Consultant. Firms Consulting is running a special. If you buy the book and post a review on Goodreads, and if you have time and would like to do so, post one on Amazon as well, and you submit a copy of your receipt to support at firmsconsulting.com. And there is a deadline, so you should do this sooner rather than later, and you should write to support to find out the deadline. We will give you a complimentary one-month access to the accompanying video programs that go into the concepts in the book in a lot more detail. Some of the video courses will come out this year. Others will come out next year. So please write to support to understand all of the criteria. But as always, I hope you're enjoying this podcast series and we will see you next week, Monday at 8 a.m. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.